Hello, I'm Chris Neeland, host of a new podcast, Cult Brand Secrets, brought to you by The Gathering and Evergreen Podcasts. The Gathering is a Forbes top-rated business summit and a masterclass for brand and business leaders looking to reap the benefits of cult-like adoration. Each year, The Gathering brings together disruptors from around the globe to learn from and to celebrate the leaders behind iconic brands like Marvel, Skittles, Beats by Dre, Yeti, and the Dallas Cowboys. For the first time ever, this podcast will give you access to some of the exclusive business leader learnings from the gathering's past events. Rory Sutherland does not run a cult brand, nor does he even work for one, but he has worked with numerous cult brands, and it was our distinct honor to have him join us from the UK and present some of his latest research findings at The Gathering back in the spring of 2021. Rory is the vice chairman of the Ogilvy and Mather group of advertising companies. He has written several books, including Alchemy, The Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense, which I personally consider a must read for anyone who is trying to better understand consumer behavior. You know, I vividly remember being in a small group of people when we watched Rory's presentation. Within the first five minutes of his talk, everyone in the room had shut up, had grabbed a pen and paper, and were scrambling to take notes. His content and his delivery were just exceptional. He's clearly intelligent, and he's an expert on decision-making. Not just how customers choose to buy, but also how executives within companies make decisions. He reminded us that most decisions are emotional. So the more that we understand behavioral science and psychology, the better we'll be able to persuade others and influence behavior. So if you run a B2B business, I think you're gonna particularly like this talk. We're trying to showcase more and more B2B brands at the gathering, and Rory helps explain some of the unique challenges that B2B brand leaders have in that space. So let's just have a listen, and then we can compare our notes afterwards. I'd just like to say something which has interested me over the last 10 years where I've spent my time looking at behavioral science. And quite often behavioral science, I think, is used the wrong way around. It's used by institutions who assume their own thought-making processes are flawless and perfect because, my goodness, they're so gloriously rational and we do so much rigorous work and analysis before making a decision. And it's used by institutions to denigrate the decision-making of individuals. You know, look at how irrational all these people are. Okay. And I think it's time for the behavioral scientists within institutions to turn the lens on themselves. Because one of the conclusions I've come to is that, first of all, individual decision-making biases tend to be individual. And as a result, they cancel out. Institutional decision-making biases, however, tend to become universal, and therefore they tend to compound themselves. And so, yes, it's true that some people probably, when they come to choose a car, um, those neighbors of yours to the south, for example, place disproportionate emphasis on, say, the number of cup holders. But not everybody does that. Some people care about fuel economy, some people care about performance, some people care more about 
speed or acceleration. Some people care more about handling. And when you aggregate all those biases, you end up with a pretty good car. Okay. On the other hand, when you institutionalize a bias, it tends to become universalized and lacking in self-correction. And I think when we understand institutional biases in decision-making, we'll start to understand a variety of things, one of which is why it's so difficult for large organizations to innovate as compared with smaller entrepreneurial competitive entities. You know, it should really be a source of shame that so much of the significant innovation that we've seen over the last 20 years has effectively come from small breakaway organizations or independent organizations and not from larger corporations or even governments. And the second thing I think the institutional bias explains is why the life of a marketer within a large organization is so goddamn difficult, painful, tiring, and such an uphill struggle. Because it's a strange thing being a marketer. One of the things is that when you succeed, even if you succeed spectacularly, nobody really quite takes your success seriously. We had one instance, I'll talk about it a little later, where something that cost £25,000 to instigate brought in an extra £10 million of annual revenue, the wonderful repositioning or reframing of information. Now, I always thought when that happened, people would immediately come back to you and say, wow, that was amazing. Can you do it again? But they don't. Every single client always says, we want to be like Apple. And then you realize they're institutionally incapable of doing the kind of things that Apple does. And so I think it's worth looking a little bit at how strange decision-making is when it's made within an institutional setting. Now, I'm a huge fan and massive enthusiast for B2B marketing, not least because there isn't nearly enough of it. It's a strange thing in the advertising industry that a lot of people would almost rather work on a brief for a packet of crisps than work on a brief for, say, you know, a, a global technology firm. And B2B marketing, a bit like healthcare marketing, is completely unfairly less fashionable than marketing relatively unimportant consumer goods. Now, economically, I think B2B marketing, as with healthcare marketing, is much, much more important than consumer marketing. And so I'm a huge fan of B2B marketing, and I occasionally jokingly say that there's only one really significant distinction between B2B and B2C behavior. And that's this. When consumers make a decision with all the biases entailed and all the heuristics they use, what they're really trying to minimize is the risk of regret. They don't want to make a decision that they'll regret. They don't want to buy a television that turns into a disaster or a car that proves to be unreliable. They want to minimize the risk of regret. If you look at B2B decision-making, it's the same but subtly different. They want to minimize the risk of blame. And that probably explains why nobody ever got fired for buying IBM is and probably will always be the greatest B2B selling line you could possibly envisage. And so let's look at this a bit more. There's a wonderful, wonderful quote from Harry S. Truman where he says, um, nothing is impossible just so long as you don't care who gets the credit. Okay? Now, dwell on that just for a moment because it's really, really interesting. Because unconsciously, perhaps, when we're in an organization, we don't really want to solve the problem. We want to be seen to be trying to solve it. And we're desperate about who gets the credit. 
And that means that the solution always has to come from our own department, from our own specialism, and we have to lay claim to the success being entirely due to our own action. And that causes us to adopt less imaginative, less oblique, uh, less creative solutions to problems than we would otherwise do, because we're not really thinking, how can I solve this problem? A lot of problems are solved obliquely, creatively. Sometimes they're solved by a really, really quite trivial butterfly effect interventions. But we're not really interested in those because what we want to do is lead a big program against the problem, which shows by the amount of money and the amount of resources we pile into directly tackling the problem, how much we care about solving it, so that in the event that it's solved, we end up getting the credit. Okay? If you solve a problem creatively or obliquely, um, you don't get the same degree of credit because you haven't signaled your degree of commitment to solving the problem in the first place. And so there's a wonderful quote here from John Maynard Keynes where he once said, he said, worldly wisdom teaches it is often better for the reputation to fail conventionally than to succeed unconventionally. And that quotation, if you like, belongs in a pair with the quotation by Harry S. Truman, that actually the extent to which we appear to be addressing a problem is probably more important to our career progression than the extent to which we actually solve it. Because there's no parallel universe, there's no alternative reality in which you can say, look, I did this trivial little tiny thing and it was much more effective than doing a big thing. All that's actually visible is the extent to which you have made an effort, often a costly effort, towards attempting to solve a problem. And the way we'll approach that problem will always be direct rather than creative, and it will always be kind of deterministic rather than probabilistic. We don't want to say, let's try 10 different things and see what works, because that doesn't signal our ownership of the solution to the same extent than saying, I think we ought to do this and going straight ahead with it. Quite often, I think we ought to adopt experimental Darwinist approaches to problems, but generally we don't. And so one of the reasons for this, I think, is explained by the work of two French anthropologists called Mercier and Sperber. I think this is Hugo Mercier, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, I think he's also based in the US now, which probably explains the backdrop of buildings uh, you see uh, in the photograph. And they came up with a very interesting hypothesis about human rationality and reasoning, which is that it didn't evolve to make decisions. We didn't evolve the complex kind of prefrontal cortex we have to make better decisions, to design space rockets, to come up with cars. We designed it to win arguments. And we designed it effectively. We have the brain, not so much of a scientist, but the brain of a defense lawyer. And what this causes us to do is when we think about reasons, when we think about uh, decisions, we're more committed to having a decision that's easy to defend in a court of law than we are committed to making a good decision. We'd rather have a good, well, we had to do this because it was obvious, because this is what the data told us to do. We'd much rather have that kind of decision than a decision that involves some degree of subjectivity, which is harder to defend in the event that things go wrong. And so we therefore engage in something which is, first of all, we only try solutions that can make sense in advance. 
Now, I'm going to say, and I'm going to tell you something surprising, which is I think this is a major limitation to the possible creative solution space. Only testing things, the workings of which can be pre-rationalized. Most progress in science actually takes place backwards. Penicillin. You discover something, you notice something accidentally, and you seek to explain it. That's how it actually works. But we're very reluctant to engage in that kind of problem solving because of the reasons that Mercier and Sperber explain. You know, in other words, the best decision I can make is not the decision with the best consequences. It's the one that's easiest to defend. And you can see if you look at people's careers and you look at how people are incentivized, the difference between a good and a great decision to your career isn't all that huge. But the risk of an undefensible bad decision is career suicide. And so we always seek those solutions where our process of reasoning can be described in advance, not in retrospect. Now, my contention is a big one. Out there in the big wide world, there are ultimately far more big ideas that we can post-rationalize than there are big ideas that we can pre-rationalize. So the requirement that we always reason in advance before experimenting is actually a massive limitation on our prospective solution space. The other thing that I think blights um, business decision-making is exactly what I said. No one ever got fired for buying IBM. This is called defensive decision-making. I met Gerd Gigerenzer, who coined the phrase, who's a brilliant Max Planck um, psychologist in Berlin. And he more or less said, and I believe this, that actually if it were an awful lot of business activity is arse-covering disguised as rigor. You're not doing the research to arrive at a better conclusion. You're doing the research to, to, to effectively defend the conclusion you've already decided upon. And Gerd's belief is if you could get rid of defensive decision-making, in other words, decision-making which doesn't fundamentally alter your choices or behavior, it simply serves to create a 35-page deck to explain in the event that things go wrong why you made the decision you did so that you can either claim the credit or duck the blame. Okay. Um, Gerd, Gerd and I met on stage and I said, effectively, could we work a lot less hard if it wasn't for the need to actually practice defensive activities? And he said, basically, we could all go home on Wednesday lunchtime and still be just as productive as we were before. And I always have a mischievous suggestion to research companies here. I always said, before you present your research findings, if you just present your research findings straight out, okay, all people will do is cherry pick the information using confirmation bias to effectively confirm the decision they've already intuitively made. So if I were a research company, I probably wouldn't be very popular doing this, but I would be very influential. I'd say the results of this research are either one or two or three, A, B, or C. And I describe the different worlds of A, B, or C. And before I told them which of the three it was, I'd ask them this simple question, what would you do differently in either case. If it were A, what would you do differently? If it were B, what would you do differently? If it were C, what would you do differently? And then only then would I then say, well, the actual result is B. And that way, you force them to acknowledge that the research does need to have some uh, effect, some bearing on the decision they take, on the policy they follow. Because if you simply say, here's what our research told us, all they do is, is basically look at it and go, well, I knew all that all along, conveniently ignoring those small parts of the research which don't chime with their existing predisposition. 
And so this defensive decision-making, before we knew it was called that, my team in London called it the, the Heathrow effect. And it's a very similar thing to nobody ever got fired to buying, for buying IBM. We always noticed, we said that if you ever wanted to fly to New York, you'd go to your corporate travel agent or you'd go to your PA, and they'd always give you a list of flights from London Heathrow to New York JFK. And I used to grumble about this because I said, look, the, the New York office of Ogilvy is much closer to Newark, which is a nicer airport, actually. Okay. It's much closer to Newark than it is to JFK. And my home is much closer to London City and Gatwick than it is to Heathrow. So why are you giving me these default Heathrow? There was nothing there from any other airport. By the way. I'm not suggesting they gave me a selection. Nope. They just went Heathrow, JFK. And then I realized, okay, there's a dynamic of blame here, which is subtly different. If you go with a default, remember what Keynes said, it is better to fail unconventionally than to succeed conventionally. If you go with a default, okay, if anything goes wrong, your boss, if you're the PA who booked the flight, your boss is going to blame British Airways. Bloody hell, I booked this flight from Heathrow to JFK. Bloody British Airways, flight's delayed. Okay? If you do something eccentric or divergent, like you book a flight from Gatwick or you book a flight to Newark. If anything goes wrong then, your boss might blame you. Do you see the distinction? Go with the flow, do the default, do the boring thing. If anything goes wrong, it's someone else's fault. Do something original. Now you've put your head above the parapet. And if anything goes wrong, you can't ring your PA okay, and say, what the hell were you thinking booking on a flight from the world's second busiest international airport? But you can ring your PA and say, if you hadn't booked me from this toy town airport, I'd be in New York by now. And so the risk of blame, which is, if, if those of you interested in game theory and decision-making heuristics, it's called minimax. When in doubt, you seek to minimize the risk of the, the severity of the work. You take the couple path of action, which minimizes the severity of the worst-case scenario. Okay? And a lot of human decision-making is minimax. It's take whichever route has the least awful worst-case scenario. Doesn't matter whether it's better than average, doesn't matter what the average expected outcome is, you practice this minimax approach. And that's why we called it the Heathrow effect. That probably explains, by the way, why there are only four really big accounting firms, right? Your point price Waterhouse or uh, EY or whatever, Deloitte, if they cock it up, everybody blames Deloitte. Okay? If you appoint a small boutique accounting firm, everybody blames you for not appointing Deloitte. Okay. Now, to be honest, I, mean, I, I suspect that Ogilvy is also a beneficiary of that bias, but I'll, I'll park that for, for a moment. Um, but it's still a really interesting way of looking at decision-making. And this is my point. I think there are far more good ideas that we can post-rationalize than there are good ideas we can pre-rationalize. But outside entrepreneurial activity, and certainly in large organizations, in large corporates, or in government and policy-making, no one's got the courage to try them. Because if you haven't got your pre-rationalization sorted out in advance, if things go wrong, you're effectively out on a limb and your whole career is in danger. But we should experiment much more. Uh, so this is what happens. And this is why being a marketer within a larger deterministic... Jim O'Shaughnessy said a wonderful thing to me. He said, the trouble is we're deterministic beings in a probabilistic universe. And that's doubly true for marketers. They're probabilistic people, you know, 
used to working in a complex and unpredictable environment, i.e. human behavior, but the business culture that surrounds them is the culture of logistics and the culture of operations and the culture of finance, which is deterministic in nature. So to the rest of the business community, the marketer looks like a complete outlier. They look completely non-rigorous and absurd, despite the fact that it's a natural process of operating in a different environment. And this is the problem that we face when it happens. Okay, it's an asymmetry. Creative people, marketers always have to present their ideas to rational people for approval. Maybe that's fine. Maybe that's how it should work. Ian McGilchrist in a book called The Master and His Emissary is a very interesting read on this interplay between what you might call the left brain and the right. Okay, he does explicitly call it that, and he's a neuroscientist, so maybe he knows what he's talking about. But every creative idea, every counterintuitive idea, every oblique idea has to be presented to rational, deterministic thinkers for approval. Fine, okay, I don't mind that, I'm not complaining. The problem is it never happens in reverse. You never get a bunch of people in finance going, well, we think it's probably going to be 7.3%, but before we actually put this into action. Let's go and share it with some really wacky people to see if they come up with some completely different idea. And that's the fundamental business asymmetry, which makes creativity and marketing in general so difficult in a larger business context. And yet I believe that many business problems which are given to economists to solve, to finance to solve, to engineers to solve, are quite often marketing problems in disguise. So let's just look at this. Let's look at solar power solar panel. The engineers, the scientists, have done a miraculously good job in both reducing the price of manufacture of these devices and increasing the efficacy to a point where it pays not only to have solar panels in Arizona, it actually pays if you have them in Canada or the UK. And yet not many people are actually installing solar panels even when it makes economic sense to do so. Why is that? Well, I would look at a bit of evolutionary psychology, I'd look at a bit of instinctive behavioral psychology and say, people are very, very reluctant to take a non-reversible commitment decision that costs five figures in one go. What you actually need to solve the solar power question is a modular system where you can install solar power on your home one or $2,000 at a time. And you can see how well it works, and then when you see it working, you can install more. Maybe what these people need to be doing is not developing the solar-powered roof. It's just too big a one-off commitment. What they need to be developing is the solar-powered summer house, the solar-powered conservatory, and most interestingly, and you can find these guys on Tesla, the solar trailer. Now, these amateur electricians have rigged up solar trailers with with a, uh, a bunch of panels. They cost about 3,000, maybe Canadian dollars, four or 5,000 Canadian dollars. And they have an inverter and they have a, 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 a number of solar cells, okay? And if you leave your Tesla parked next to a solar trailer and you don't drive anywhere for three days, it'll basically charge the whole thing up. I looked at that and said, that's brilliant. That's what I want. And I suddenly realized, of course, first of all, it's a $3,000 product, not a $30,000 product. Its benefits are very, very salient. It charges my car. I'm driving along the road on solar power. But there's a final little thing. Unlike those solar panels on the roof, if I buy one and it doesn't work out, it's on a trailer so I can sell it to somebody else. 
Now, what I'm saying is that the brilliant engineers and scientists who've done this extraordinary business of improving solar panel haven't considered the other half of the equation, which is now that's that problem solved, how do we actually present it and package it in a way where people are willing to buy it? And that's not a scientific problem, that's a psychological problem. And the problem we have in business is that psychological problems are low status, and deterministic or scientific or engineering or finance discussions are high status. And so once people, even marketers, get promoted to the board, they like pretend they're finance people. You go, yes, 3.75. Because they know it's particularly true if you have a very male board, by the way. Because if you place a large number of disproportionately male primates in a space, they tend to turn everything into a kind of nerdy, masturbatory contest around balance sheet reading. And I've occasionally attended these meetings. And what I want to say is, have you thought of making it pink? But I know that if I utter that sentence, even though it may be a better suggestion, I will be treated as an idiot for the next three years of my time. But I just want to bring you, bring you back to this point. Of there are problems that you can solve in retrospect that you can't solve by pre-rationalization. Okay, there are, there are solutions out there which are only obvious in retrospect. It's why we need creativity. And I'm going to talk to, to talk you about two of them. One of them evaded me for eight years. I used to travel a lot on business. And I used to pack about six different plug adapters, depending on whether I was going to North America, continental Europe, um, uh, or South Africa, or somewhere else. Australia has different plug adapters still. I'm not quite sure why. In fact, it was such a pain that I used to heave a sigh of relief when I was flying to Hong Kong or Ireland. But it was one of those trips where I actually didn't need a goddamn plug adapter. And I had literally 20 of these things. I still have them. They're in a bag. And it took me five years. Now, I like to think of myself as an imaginative person, okay? But it took me five years before I realized that if you buy one of these four-gang British plug adapters, if you're a Brit, obviously, if you're Canadian, it's different. If you buy one of these extension leads with three or four plugs and four USB sockets, you only need to take one adapter with you, maybe two just for spares and redundancy. And when I shared this on Twitter with everybody, about 50% of the people went, wow, that's brilliant. It never occurred to me before. It's only obvious in retrospect. And that's why you need creativity. You need a certain zaniness and eccentricity to solve problems because there's no pre-rationalizing process that'll get you there. But once you do get there, it looks obvious. Now, all but 10 people watching this are now going to regard me as a complete lunatic for the next minute, okay? You're going to go, this guy's nuts. Get him off, right? I'm suggesting that the next time you have your kitchen remodeled, you get two dishwashers. And everybody's going, what the hell is this guy talking about? I'm going to use, it's expensive. I'm going to use a load of storage. It's going to waste a load of space. I haven't got space for two dishwashers. The other 10 people in the room are going, absolutely right. Known this all along. Been preaching this for ages because those are the people who already have two dishwashers. What's magical about it? Let me explain because this has never occurred to 95% of people, including me. Okay. When you have two dishwashers, you don't lose any storage. And you never have to unstack your dishwasher. Because what you do is you have a dirty dishwasher and gradually you fill that up with dirty plates. And then by the time you've done that, your other dishwasher's empty. So you put the, you put 
the dishwasher on. That now becomes the clean dishwasher. You retrieve your clean plates from the clean dishwasher, use, use them, and now put them in the other dishwasher that becomes the dirty dishwasher. And then eventually, when the dirty dishwasher fills up, the process basically repeats itself in reverse. So you never have to unstack your dishwasher and you don't lose any storage space either. But I'm willing to bet that apart from the people who already have two dishwashers, this has never occurred to anybody. It certainly never occurred to me until one very weird eccentric friend of mine did it. And it also prompted a letter in a British newspaper where about five people who had dishwashers, two dishwashers, wrote in and basically said, if you don't do this, you're mad. But it's really important to understand this. And why it's important to understand is if you look at all these brands on the screen, they're all billion-dollar brands. Now, you don't know what Gusto is. It's British. Um, it's actually a bit like Blue Apron in the United States. It's a food kit delivery service. They're all valued at over a billion. I would argue that all of them made no sense whatsoever when someone first came up with the idea. If you look at, for example, Dyson, if James Dyson had come to me years ago and said, I think there's a market for a um, $700, $800 vacuum cleaner, I would have said, Jim, mate, um, I really don't think there is. Let's look at the vacuum cleaner market, Miele at the top, something utilitarian at the bottom, sweet spots around the $200 mark. I really don't think there's a market for an $800 vacuum cleaner. And in any case, if you can afford that much money on a vacuum cleaner, you probably employ someone to clean your house so you don't even do your own vacuuming. Now, at that point, if James had come to me and said, but wait, you haven't heard about my plan for a $400 hairdryer, I would have had him escorted out of the building as a dangerous lunatic. But then here's the thing. He's a billionaire and I'm not. Okay? Um, bottled water makes no sense. Starbucks makes no sense. Amazon Prime, everybody except Jeff Bezos hated the idea. Um, Zoom, they couldn't get investors because everybody said, you've got Facebook, Amazon, you've got Google, you've got Apple, you've got Microsoft. All of them have a free video conferencing product and you're proposing competing against these guys with a product you actually have to pay for. I met the guy, actually, Daniel Scheinman, who I have to say uh, was one of the most remarkable and intelligent and insightful people I've ever come across in my life. I only met him for 10 minutes at a conference. We were sitting next to each other. He was then the chief legal counsel at, um, at, at uh, Cisco. I remember meeting him and thinking, geez, this guy's a real genius. You know, this guy's amazing. And I went and Googled him a little while ago, and I discovered he was the first investor in Zoom. He was the guy who would invest when nobody else would. Okay. Now, all of these things, Nespresso, there was no market for 70 pence coffee that people brewed at home. Okay. Five or six nutters would like hand roast, you know, Jamaican Blue Mountain over hickory wood and then grind them in some, you know, and then, you know, and there were 10 or 20 people who spent that kind of money on speciality coffee. The great thing with Uber, the great thing with Nespresso is often psychological. Uber's insight is that it, we don't mind waiting for cabs. We can't stand the uncertainty of waiting for a cab. Okay? Uber also has a psychological benefit in the realm of status because you can time your arrival onto the sidewalk to coincide with the car drawing up, which makes you feel like Kaiser Soze at the end of The Usual Suspects. It makes you feel like Louis Fourteenth. When you get out of an Uber, you don't have to pay. So it feels like a chauffeur experience, not a driven experience. But best of all, you can see the little car on the map. And so the psychological experience of the wait is massively reduced. There's a great model by a guy called David Rock, which I might show later. Scarf. 
Five things humans really care about that economists and rational determinists don't understand. Status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. Espresso, I think, is a price-framing thing. Um, because you pay for the pod and you think of the price as a pod, they charge by the pod, they don't charge by the jar. Our frame of reference is Starbucks. It's not Folgers or Maxwell House. If you had to buy an espresso coffee in a jar, a jar would cost about 40 bucks. And you'd look at it in the shelf and go, that is just batshit insane. There's no way I'm doing that. Okay, Pay by the individual cup, our whole price perception changes. And I think this is important because these are all hugely successful businesses which you can post-rationalize with behavioral science, but you never would have got there through pre-rationalization. Wonderful acknowledgement of this by a guy who knows marketing, Kumal Galhotra, who's the head of Ford North America, who says very beautifully that car making is 100,000 rational decisions in search of one emotional decision. But this is a really important point. There are two sentences very closely related, which my friend Chris Graves and I have come up with, which we use repeatedly. Just because something makes sense doesn't mean it's true. That's your argumentative brain at work. I don't need to come up with the right explanation for this. I just need to come up with an explanation that's plausible and makes sense. That's our brain as defense lawyer looking for an alibi, not our brain as scientist looking for the truth. Okay? The second thing is the concomitant of that, which is just because something doesn't make sense doesn't mean it's wrong. Red Bull is the classic example I always give of a billion-dollar brand. If you'd wanted to compete with Coca-Cola, okay, in a business setting, you would have had to come up with a rational way to compete. We want to drink that tastes nice than Coke. It's got to cost less than Coke and come in a really great big can so people get great refreshment for their money. Red Bull, which is the most successful attempt to compete with a Coca-Cola company in 60 years, think about it, okay, comes in a tiny can, it costs a fortune, and it tastes disgusting. Why does that work? I think the only way you can explain it is psychologically through recontextualization. Contextualized as a soft drink, Red Bull is not a good soft drink. Recontextualize it as a drug or as a placebo, all the things that are a weakness in a drink, weird taste, high price, small dosage, are actually a perceptual strength in a drug. Add one more factor, which is you're not allowed to sell it to people under 16. You couldn't ask for a greater marketing gift in the sale of something which promises psychoactive effect. Now, a few other things. Um, I'm going to ask the, the, the host here, how long have I got? Because I, I haven't got fantastically accurate timekeeping here. Then, uh, oh, hold on. I've got a little bit of time. Okay, I've got a little bit of time. The other thing I propose you do in marketing is develop the mind of a biologist. Look at biology. Some of the best planners we had at Ogilvy were actually evolutionary biologists or they were geneticists or similar because they tend to think in ecosystem terms, in whole system terms. They don't make that lazy assumption that the optimization of the individual parts automatically leads to the optimization of the whole. People with an engineering or finance mentality tend to assume that. If we optimize the individual component parts, that will mean the optimization of the whole. One of the great problems with siloing people in companies is everybody only gives a crap about their part of the system, not the, the deleterious effects they may be having on the system overall. So here's a wonderful experiment in uh, animal husbandry from a man called Muir. If you breed from the top laying chickens. Chickens have to be kept in cages of about 10 or communities of about 10 if it's free range. Okay? 
If you breed from the top-laying cages, you get a massive increase in productivity. If you breed from the top-laying individuals within the cages, you get psychotic chickens which attack the other chickens and your overall egg production actually goes down, not up. I think a wonderful guy called Toby Shannon talks about this. Uh, he's a, actually a Canadian. He's actually the chief operating officer of, of, of uh, Shopify. He makes the point that you should incentivize people on team productivity and collective productivity, not on an individual component thereof. I think this is one really important lesson. Another one is that persuasion is much more important in the economy than we realize because economics treats information, perfect information and perfect trust as a given. Everything we know about primatology, everything we know about the animal kingdom shows that actually any act of cooperation between two life forms requires, first of all, imagination. What if we both work together to do this? Secondly, persuasion, where the imaginative entity persuades the other entity to engage in their joint venture. And thirdly, trust that the other party believes that if he does actually participate in this joint venture, he will get a fair share of the reward. If you watch the same group of chimps or bonobos or whatever it is for five years, you will never see two chimps cooperating to carry a heavy log. What, you know, they haven't got the imagination or the persuasive skills to actually engage in cooperative exchange. So I would argue we need a new model of economics with marketing right at the top which is if, you, if you've got no imagination and you can't persuade and you can't trust, you can't cooperate in the first place. What economics has done is it's assumed those three things are a given and exogenous to the model and set about optimizing everything else. And here's a third lesson from biology, bees. There's a trade-off between bees between following the waggle dance and exploration. So, I'm going to say 80%. It's not an accurate scientific answer, but it's a rough approximation for some bees some of the time. 80% of bees obey the waggle dance. 20% of the bees go off at random. And this surprised bee scientists because they thought it was an inefficiency. And then they discovered that if you don't have the random bees, if you don't have a trade-off between exploit and explore, your hive gets trapped in a local maximum and starves to death. Now, the great thing about bees is they don't have much personality. I may be doing them a huge disservice, okay? But, but what I'm saying is that if these were humans, the exploratory bees would despise the, the obedient bees as mere drudges, okay? And the obedient bees would deride the random bees as dilettanti. That's looked at from the point of view of a narrow conception of what optimization is. From the point of view of the genetic fortunes of the queen for the hive as the whole, they're not either or, they're both. They're actually complementary and you need both. And this is the relationship between creativity and what you might call efficiency that we need in a business. If you have no creativity and pure, pure efficiency, two things happen. You become fragilized. You often become very vulnerable. Uh, you starve to death when the environment changes, and you never get lucky. On the other hand, there's no point in having random bees if you don't have a certain number of obedient bees, because the discoveries made by the random bees never translate into collective conformist action. And so the way to look at the system with the eyes, the mindset of a biologist is look at the contribution you're making to the whole. Don't try and divide it down into optimizing the component parts because quite often you need both. The opposite of a great idea 
is another great idea, as Niels Bohr once said. So this is my plea for a better approach to marketing. This was made in 1957 by a marketing guru of the 1950s called Roe Alderson. And he said, what we need, I don't know why I said what us needed, what is needed is not an interpretation of the utility created by marketing, but a marketing interpretation of the whole process of creating utility. And I think that starts with imagination, persuasion, and trust. Everything else is secondary. I've not loaded this, by the way. The fantastic economist Deirdre McCloskey says something similar in a paper called Humanomics. She thinks that sweet talk and persuasion, what you and I might call marketing, contribute 25% of the economy. Now, finally, we'll get down to perception because I'm running out of time. It's useful to know psychologically that um, we perceive the world not objectively, What drives our behavior is feelings. What drives feelings is meaning. And meaning is context-dependent. We don't make decisions on the basis of objective information. We make a decision on the basis of what something means. And what something means is a combination of what it is and the framework within which it's presented. I once used a Don Draper mind trick to persuade my dad to get satellite television. He wouldn't pay £17 a month. And I said, I'll buy it for you for Christmas. He said, no, it's still too expensive. I don't want you buying that for me for Christmas. It's too expensive. And I said, he's not interested in movies. He's not interested in, in, in films. He's only interested in news and documentaries, you know, kind of, you know, sharks of the Third Reich, that kind of stuff, right? And he's 80. Give him a break, right? Okay. Now, the interesting thing is that he wouldn't buy it. And then I tried this very simple trick. I said, but it isn't 17 pounds a month, Dad. It's 60p a day. He said, well, why does that make a difference? It's exactly the same. I said, yes, but you spend two pounds there on newspaper. If you spend two pounds there on newspaper, spending another 30% to get 200 channels of documentary and news television doesn't seem all that crazy. Oh, he said, I see what you mean. He went and got it with his own money. I didn't even have to buy it for a, as a present. And 10 years later, he's the greatest sky advocate among the nonogenarians of the Welsh borders. So, You can change the price of something, not by changing the price. You just compare what people compare it, change what people compare it to. It's recontextualization, and it's the best trick in problem solving. But here's the thing. When you define proxy measures of success, when you allow economists, determinists, engineers, and reductionists to define the problem in objective measurable terms, right? you destroy the power to recontextualize. Once you define a solution in human behavioral terms or perceptual terms, you have all the power to recontextualize you like. And suddenly your magical solution space, your potential for alchemy goes up massively. This is why success, a brief, an objective, should always be framed in human terms, acknowledging emotion, not in purely SI unit reductionist scientific terms. Okay? The best financial product isn't the one necessarily with the best financial returns. It's the one with good financial returns that people actually want to buy. That's how we should re- redefine good product. We should include the very marketability of the thing in the thing itself, rather than designing the perfect thing according to rational light. I went to some of the, the, one of the cleverest people in the country This is a company with two maths geniuses at its head, which does advanced AI. And they're working on an AI project to make an incredibly quiet electric toothbrush. 
And I said, go back to Raymond Lowy in the 1950s. If you make a product too quiet, nobody thinks it's working. Rolls-Royce actually went to Pirelli and got tires made, which had foam in them, which reduced the road rumble, the road noise considerably. When they tested them out, they actually reduced noise dampening in the body of the car, because if you had both, it made the car so silent, it was freaky to drive because you were getting absolutely no feedback. You can't use a completely silent electric toothbrush because we use the noise. Raymond Lurvie did that with a fan. He produced a fan that was so quiet, nobody wanted to buy it because everybody believed it was ineffectual. It failed to cool them because they didn't think it was working. And that's where Raymond Lurvie got the idea of Maya from, M-A-Y-A, maximally advanced yet acceptable. Okay? And so here are loads of recontextualization experiments. I can actually increase the... Um, uh, of the capacity of a railway line anywhere in Canada or the world. And I can also reduce the journey time with an app for about a million pounds and a three million pound advertising budget. I can actually, because what I've done is I've recontextualized journey times. Engineers define it as the amount of time you spend on the train. I'm a marketer. I define it as end-to-end -end journey time. If you allow people with pre-bought tickets to board earlier trains if they turn up earlier, okay, right, you've reduced journey time. An engineer thinks that's cheating. A passenger thinks it's brilliant. Who do you care about, the engineer or the passenger? It also increases capacity, by the way, and I won't go into the whole detail about that with yield management, but you should always allow people to occupy unused capacity on earlier departures because it reduces the risk of overcrowding later on. If you notice when they evacuate the US Embassy compound in Saigon, right? They got as many people into each helicopter as they could who were available. They didn't say, I'm sorry, sorry we're going to leave half empty with this helicopter because you three are booked on the 1230 departure, right? That's a solution which costs literally about eight orders of magnitude less than building a railway line. But engineers don't regard it as a valid solution because it requires recontextualization. And their requirement for objectivity prevents them from doing it. This is my most beautiful case of recontextualization this year. Premium eggs sold by rare breeds come in different colors. If you put different colored eggs, some blue, some white, some brown, in a three by two, actually you're North Americans, aren't you? So you probably buy eggs like 24 at a time, do you? We're European. We tend to have weedy little packaging, you know, like little things of orange juice that you couldn't even fill a bath with, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay. Okay. You probably buy your eggs in some sort of square shaped container. Okay. And the trouble is, if you put different colored eggs in a square container, it looks messy. Marks and Spencer's discovered if you put them in a circle, it's now no longer a bug, it's a feature. Changing the presentation of the thing changes the thing itself. This is my favorite case, my favorite ad campaign of my life, which is when I landed on a plane and the engines wound down and all of us on the plane had that simultaneous thought, oh shit, it's going to be a bus. And we always think of the bus as the poor man's air bridge, don't we? And the EasyJet pilot came over the tannoy and he said, um, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is, the, sorry, bad news and some good news. The bad news is we won't be able to get into an air bridge because there's a plane blocking our gate. That's good. There's a reason. You're not just trying to skimp on the air bridge fees. Okay. But the good news is the bus will take you all the way to passport control so you won't have far to walk with your bags before you collect your check. And all the time we were all riding on the bus, we weren't thinking, oh, shit, this is a crap bus. I hate effing bus, bloody bus. Why couldn't they get us an air bridge? Buses are so crap. We were thinking of the journey we weren't having to make. 
he'd recontextualized the bus and turned it from an inconvenience into being a conveyance. I think marketing and innovation are fundamentally the same thing. There are two things you can create new economic value in the marketplace by doing. Okay, One of them is you find out what people want and you work out a really clever way to make it. That's conventional innovation. The other way is you find out what you can make and work out a really clever way to make people want it. Now, the money you make through these two processes, regardless of the direction of travel, is just the same. Ludwig von Mises of the Austrian school, a marvelous, marvelous school of economics, which actually understood the value of psychology and behavior, he understood this. And by the man who cooks the food here, he means manufacturing. And the man who sweeps the floor, he explicitly means marketing. There's no sensible decision to be made in a restaurant between the value created by the man who cooks the food and the value created by the man who sweeps the floor. This is recontextualization. Take the wheat spot, turn it into a strength. We're number two, okay? Ronald Reagan did recontextualization. He rebranded age as experience. When he did that in the debate, even Mondale laughed. Nobody raised the question of his age again before the second term ever again. Physicists, mathematicians do great recontextualization. Remember that the opposite of a good idea is another good idea. Creative people do it in a very interesting way. They tend to run towards the very contradiction that everybody else flees. You can't say that, you know, reading The Economist will make you successful at work. But if you say it in a funny way, yes, you can. I was at a wonderful creative offsite in South Africa, hosted by Neil French. And we were working on an imaginary brief for the South African Tourist Board at a time when the crime rate in South Africa was going through the roof. And the one bit of advice all of us oldies said was, don't, don't mention crime. There was one guy, a creative, a copywriter from Ogilvy, Chicago, who was determined to ignore our advice. His ad was a picture of the luxury train that goes through the South African countryside. It's absolutely magnificent. And the headline was, it's the carjacking capital of the world. So take the train. The creative person, that's why I love that sign that says fire entrance, not fire exit. The creative person runs towards the kind of contradiction or awkwardnesses that the conventional thinker runs away from. That's why they produce alchemy, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very, very much. And for a rare, miraculous moment, I actually ran to time. So thank you ever so much. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast. You know, right out of the gate, I love how Rory discussed the difference between the risk of regret when you make personal buying decisions versus avoiding the risk of blame when we make business decisions. That insight alone should change the way that B2B salespeople and marketers promote their offerings when they're trying to close deals with business clients. I also wholeheartedly agree with Rory's observations about institutionalized biases and why it's so difficult for large organizations to innovate. I have banged my head against so many walls so many times out of frustration because I witnessed so many smart people making so many dumb decisions. 
But Rory's work is making me more empathetic to the mindsets and the situations that these business leaders are in. That doesn't mean that I like it. In fact, I still find it ridiculous that someone would rather, you know, as Rory says, fail conventionally than succeed unconventionally. But it is helpful to know those motivations and desires of the different types of people that I'm interacting with. You know, and to conclude, Rory's presentation, in my opinion, is a must listen for any marketer. His examples about the relative perception of price, for example, could help reduce the rampant discounting that's going on. And better, appreciate, uh, and better appreciating business asymmetry will help marketers more successfully exchange ideas and influence how their organizations solve problems. So I suggest that you call a team meeting, listen to his presentation together for an hour, and then discuss and debate its implications. Your company will be better for it. Until next time. Once again, this is your host, Chris Neeland, and you've been listening to Cult Brand Secrets, where we explore the great speakers and insights shared at The Gathering, a Forbes top-rated business summit. Learn more about The Gathering at cultgathering.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It really helps. Cult Brand Secrets is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, Learn more about our podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com. Special thanks to Connor Standish and Laura Winter for their assistance in making this podcast possible. Also, I'd like to thank our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz, as well as executive producers, David Moss and Bridget Coyne. I'm your host, Chris Nealon. Thanks for listening. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.